Our Father, the psalmist said that, uh, he, he said it this way, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I shall live. Uh, sometimes when we are talking with someone, we get distracted. Sometimes uh, we see someone else in the room, our eyes wander. Sometimes um, our mind is somewhere else. Uh, those folks, whoever it is we're speaking with, don't have our undivided attention. But when we come to you, our Father, we have your undivided attention. Uh, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. We are grateful, Lord, that uh, not only do you hear us, but you understand us. And sometimes when we come to you, we have things on our hearts that are, at times, it's even difficult to communicate. It's even difficult. We, we don't even know how to say it. But what a wonderful thing to know that we don't have to say it for you to get it. Because you know our hearts. You understand our thoughts from afar. You get us. You understand us. You created us. You know that we're but dust. And what we cannot articulate, you understand. What a great God you are. What a great Father you are. Oftentimes, we uh, hesitate to come to you because we're aware of our, uh, of our sin. We're aware of our inconsistency. We're aware of our failures. But how grateful we are that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That our sin, that our shame, that uh, Christ took our sin upon him and died in our place. He died as our substitute. And the wrath which should have come upon us was put upon him. As, as the hymn writer put it, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? It was once a year that the uh, high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. But because of what Jesus has done, we can enter into the Holy of Holies any time. We can approach you at any time. And not only can we approach you, but you understand what's in our hearts and what we're trying to say. That is a great thing. To walk into your presence without condemnation because of what Christ has done. So often, Lord, we forget our privileges as your men. We forget that we have access, and we forget that you're here. And Lord, uh, when we pray, help us to be mindful that uh, we don't know what's best. We know what we would like to have happen, but we don't know if that's the best thing to happen. So as Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. So as we pray as a group and in the quietness of our own hearts and throughout the day as things come to our mind, whatever it is that's on our hearts that we would ask for, we would also say, not my will, but thine be done. You know what's best. You know what we need. 
Your timing is always impeccable. So tonight, Father, we just simply say that we have a great love for you and we have a great trust in you. As for me, I say that I trust in you, O Lord. I say that you are my God. My times are in your hand. We commit ourselves to you tonight. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew Henry is the author of maybe the greatest one-volume Bible commentary that there is. Uh, it's been around for several hundred years, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. Uh, I remember my dad always had a copy of that, and I've got several copies of it. It's a good, great resource to have, and I remember talking to my dad at certain times, and we'd have a question or something, and he'd say, well, let's just see what old Matthew Henry has to say, because he was such a good, solid, balanced scholar. Matthew Henry's father was uh, Philip Henry, and I want to begin tonight with a quote from Matthew Henry's father, Philip Henry, and this is in regard to, um, this is in regard to death. Uh, we're doing the series, and let's see if I can get the series right tonight. I got it turned around last week. Um, uh, we're calling the series on Philippians, uh, Contentment in Crisis. Uh, tonight, uh, I want to talk about getting a grip on death. Because when you really stop and think about it, the ultimate crisis is death. Um, It's going to happen. Uh, the, the Supreme Court cannot reverse it. <laughs> the Supreme Court cannot uh, eradicate it. Uh, Congress cannot uh, get around it. Uh, you're going to die. And once again, I'm always here to encourage you. <laughs> but you're going to die, and I'm going to die, and we all know that. Philip Henry said, said this, and it's in the context of a man considering his death. Philip Henry said, two things are to be set in order, the house and the heart. The house by settling our worldly estate. You see the attorney, you fill out the forms, the wills, the trust, okay. Two things are to be set in order, the house and the heart. The house by settling our worldly estate. We shall die none the sooner, but we shall certainly be ready or ready for death. And then we settle the heart by settling our spiritual estate. That is, making our calling and election sure, repenting of sin, receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, walking in all his commandments blameless. He who has done this is ready for death. The fact of the matter is, is that most men just settle the house. Most men just settle the estate. 
they figure out who's going to get the house, who's going to get the, you know, the savings, whatever's in the IRA. It's all, you know, all that stuff. Uh, you know, my oldest son's going to get the shotgun. You know, my other son's going to get the fly rod. Whatever it is you're working out, that's the, uh, that's the earthly estate. That's the estate of the home. That's your turf. That's your stuff. That's where most men stop. But there is the estate. There is the estate of the heart. Uh, yeah, so tonight I would, I would title this uh, Getting a Grip on Death. Because until you get a grip on death, grip, death has got a grip on you. Um, and the reason it's important to get a grip on death is because until you get a, a correct grip on death, you really can't get a correct grip on life. Uh, death is, is always looming. Death is always in the background. We... we and there are two reactions to it. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians tonight, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. But I don't want to begin there. I want to begin in Hebrews chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Psalm 49. Because those two passages deal with, um, I think, the major issues that allow death to grip us. First of all, death grips us, even though we don't want to talk about it, even though we don't want to discuss it. What, what grips us, if, if, if we have a wrong understanding of death and, and who Christ is, what happens is we walk around with a fear of death. And let's just go to Hebrews chapter 2. One of the great things about the gospel, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Um. First Corinthians uh, 15 says that uh, I delivered to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 at one time. Then lastly, Paul says he appeared to me. The good news is that Christ went to the cross, died for our sin, was buried, rose on the third day. By coming out of that tomb, he conquered death. He beat death. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, uh, wrote, wrote, a, wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Hebrews chapter, and, and, and that, you know, that's... It's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it challenges you. Um, John Owen was a man who was familiar with death. He and his wife had 12 children. 11 of them died in infancy. Can you imagine that? 11 out of 12. One of his daughters made it to the early 20s, and then she died. He buried every one of his 12 kids. So you see, this meant a lot to him. The death of death. He hated death. He despised death. The death of death in the death of Christ. He knew that he would see those children again and be with them forever. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, and we want to begin at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... 
Um, I'm just picking this thing up right in midstream here. He himself also partook of the same, meaning Jesus. Uh, so, so Jesus is the God man. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But know this, before Jesus was born, Jesus had always existed because Jesus is God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the God-man came to earth, took on human flesh, born of a virgin. Philippians 2 have the same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Although he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, so he laid aside his privileges, and what did he do? He came to earth, and he was born of a virgin. He became, he took on flesh and blood. Okay, that's our context. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same. Now watch this that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and that he might free those who through, watch this, fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives. You see, death can get you in a grip. And, and the grip is, is that you are a slave to the fear of death and to the knowledge that one day you will die and there is not a thing you can do to get out of it. Uh, William Randolph Hearst, in his day, was the Steve Jobs of his day. He was, uh, uh, you know, the going, the, 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 the tech thing back then were newspapers, and he had more newspapers across the world than anybody else on the face of the earth. Um, he had a home on the central coast of California called San Simeon, Hearst Castle. You can visit it. If you ever get a chance, it's worth going to, believe me. The immense wealth, the immense riches that that man had, uh, staggering. Every room you walk into was brought over from Europe somewhere, some castle, there's some cathedral. Everything was brought over. He had warehouses. He had men full-time in Europe. He had warehouses stocked with stuff. There's a story about Hearst. He was looking for a particular painting. Uh, he, they were scouring Europe, looking for this painting for years. They found it in one of his warehouses. He'd had it the whole time. Didn't even know he had it. Um, the man had everything. He had everything. Every morning, early morning, a plane would leave Los Angeles Airport, head up to Central Coast, land at the Strip at San Simeon, with all of his newspapers. Brought all the newspapers so he could look at any of his newspapers he wanted to look at. But before he would go through his newspapers, a secretary would go through every one of those newspaper and mark out any reference to death. He had everything in the world. He could buy anything he wanted, but he could not buy his way out of the slavery that was in his life to the fear of death. Um, so some are slaves. They're conscious of it all the time. They don't want to think about it. They, uh, others, uh, go to Psalm 49. Not only is there the fear of death, but others in some way, shape, or form will just, they live as though there is no death. They, they're in denial about death. Psalm 49, beginning with verse 10, 
for he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Watch this. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. They name things after themselves. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Look at verse 16. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And oftentimes you'll see men who are very, very wealthy congratulating themselves. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. By the way, where is his father? He's either dead or on the way to being dead. Where is your father? He's either dead or he's on the way to being dead. You see? He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. You cannot buy your way out of death. It just cannot be done. And you can... See, either way, it's got you in the grip. So what we have to do is get a grip on death because until you get a right grip on death, you can't get a right grip on life. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 1. You see, in Philippians 1, we see Paul in crisis. He's in jail again. He will be in jail. He'll get out of jail. And then later, he'll get back in jail. Uh, it was not unusual for Paul to be in some kind of crisis, to be in some kind of adversity, to be in some kind of suffering. But... Uh, in the midst of his suffering and in the midst of his adversity, Paul, um, Paul had an internal contentment and, and he had an internal peace. Peace. We're going to Philippians 1, but we might as well go to Philippians 4. Verse 6, he's writing, to, he's in jail, he's writing to the church at Philippi. They they communicated with him to encourage him, and Paul, being Paul, writes back to encourage them. He says in 4.6, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. As you're here tonight, what are you anxious about? Be anxious for nothing. Oh, I'm anxious about my health, all right? Or I'm anxious about this situation at work, or I'm anxious about this, or I'm... Right, it's understandable, but... But Paul is writing, and he says, when you really get a grip on life and who it is that gave you life and who it is that conquered death and who has called you, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not together with him freely give us all things? If that's true, be anxious for nothing, but in 
everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Watch this. And the peace of God. The peace of God. Not peace because difficulty is out of your life. We're never going to experience that on this earth. But you see, in the midst of crisis, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, watch this, will guard, will garrison your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul in prison. He's in crisis. He doesn't know if he's going to be released. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know if he's going to die. Yet as he's in these circumstances, and this has been a four-year chapter of his life by the time this, this imprisonment is over, um, all the while he's got internal peace. And he goes on later in, in chapter 4 and says, I have learned to be content. Whatever circumstances I'm in, I've learned to be content. And we've mentioned already in here, this is one of the last lessons that we learn. You've got to learn to be content. And it takes, you don't get this in weeks, you don't get it in months. It, this takes years and years and years because it takes a certain kind of perspective. The more you know Christ, the, know, the more you know the greatness of the Father, the more you know the Scriptures, the more that what happens to you is that you get a security and you get a, um, you, you get a, um, a steadiness in your life because you know you're not in this by yourself. You know he's got your back, he's got your flanks, and he's got you in front. He's got you. You belong to him. Let's read the passage in Philippians 1 to get the context. We know that Paul's in prison. He's made that clear in the opening verses. Yet beginning at the end of 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Now watch this. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's keep reading the verse 30, and then we're going to come back and we're going to take this apart. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. Uh, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake." experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. There's a lot in that passage. So I'm working on it. And I'm thinking, how do I break this down? I've got ten critical concepts. Not two, not four, 
When you go to seminary and you take a preaching class, they tell you the ideal is three. Sometimes two, sometimes four. You never do ten. I'm doing ten. So we're going to have to fly. I want to give you ten critical concepts that are in this, but the, 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 way, the reason I did this is that by breaking this down into bite-sized pieces, you get the flow of what he's talking about and how it applies to you and how it applies to me. Um, the first one, the first critical concept, number one, Paul wants to finish strong. This is verses 19 and 20. He's in prison. He's back in prison. He's got some miles on his tires. He's, he's aging. He's been beat up. He's been flogged. He's been through all this stuff as an ambassador of Christ. Okay? He's been through a lot. Um, flip over to 1 Corinthians 11. Just, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11. Let's just rehearse a little bit of what he's been through. And we went over there this, I think, last week. In, in defending himself to those critics who said he wasn't a legitimate, a legitimate apostle, he had to make a defense, which he normally wouldn't do. But this is the context of 2 Corinthians 11. He says in verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Watch this. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, how many fights were you in in high school? You remember. Okay? You remember. How many did you win? How many did you lose? You remember. If you got beat up, you remember those. You remember those. Okay. Paul says, I was beaten times without number. Can't even count how many times I was beat senseless for the gospel. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. They wouldn't give you 40 because 40 would kill you. 39 lashes, five times. Paul took off his shirt. His back looked like ground round. Paul couldn't sleep. I don't think he slept well at night, do you? Would you sleep well at night? If you had had 39 lashes five times, you couldn't sleep on your back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. They'd take boulders, crush his bones. Undoubtedly, I'm not a physician. I would think he had some internal bleeding. I would think he would have blood in his urine. Don't you think? You go through something like that? Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's read verses 19 through 20 in his desire to finish strong. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He coveted their prayers. Uh, why? According to my earnest expectation and hope, watch this, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm in this deal in Rome. I'm in prison here for, I don't know how long I'm going to be. It turned out it was going to be two years. Prior to this, he was two years in prison in Caesarea. He appealed to Caesar 
So this is Acts 21 to 28. But it's about a four-year stint. So he's in prison. He doesn't know how long he's going to be in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. All that he's been through. This guy's been beat up. This guy's got miles on the tires. This guy is, uh, is exhausted. He's, wouldn't you be just physically? He's a physical wreck. But what he wants to do is he doesn't want the pressure, whatever he's going to face, he doesn't want to cave in under the pressure. He doesn't want to cave in. He wants to finish strong. He wants to boldly declare the gospel. Um, whether he lives or whether he dies, he wants to do it with courage. He's asking for their prayers. There is a young man who is an Iranian pastor from America who's in jail in Iran. He's been there about three years. You probably know about it. There are others along with him. I try to pray for him every day. He has a wife. He has a little girl and a little boy. I try to pray for him. If he comes to my mind, sometimes I pray for him five times a day. I'm sure I miss a day now and then, but I try to pray for him every day of what he's going through. I just recently read that he's been going through some excruciating torture with tasers. Can you imagine such a thing? I, I got, I, I, I've got two sons right around his age. What if those were your boys? He needs the prayers of God's people to sustain him, to encourage him. That's what Paul needed. Paul wanted to finish strong, so he coveted their prayers. And you say, why would Paul? Of course Paul's going to finish strong. Well, Paul was a man just like us. Uh, is it 1 Corinthians 10, 12? Let him who stands take heed, lest he what? Any of us could go down at any time. We need the Spirit of God to sustain us. We need the prayers of God's people. Paul wanted to finish strong and not cave in to the pressure. He wanted to be courageous. When everybody's against you at work, it's hard to stand for the truth. Okay. First, first critical concept, he wanted to finish strong. Secondly, Paul talks about the fact that he's hard-pressed. Hard-pressed. Let's go down to uh, verse 21. In fact, let's pick up at the end of 20 where he says, But that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. I want Christ to be honored and glorified, whether by life or by death. Whatever happens to me, I don't care. I just want Christ to be honored. 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions. Isn't that interesting? I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Go back to 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if we gave everyone a sheet of paper, uh, you don't look on the paper of the guy next to you, it, this is private, it's confidential, and we gave you a sheet of paper, and it said, for me to live is blank, and to die is blank. In all honesty, from your gut, from your heart, how would you fill in the blanks? For me to live is for me to die is, uh, some guys, for me to live is football. That's their whole life. Uh, for me to live is, 
sufficient for me to live as success, for me to live as the limelight, for me to live as more drugs, for me to live as fill in the blank. See, uh, Paul was a changed man. For me to live is Christ, now watch this, and to die is gain. That's counterintuitive. When someone dies, we often say, and it's a legitimate thing to say, I am sorry for your loss. Because you've lost a relationship. They're not in your life anymore, you see. Uh, we tend to think of death. Um, we, have, we have a survivor instinct within us. But you see, when you really get a Christian biblical view of death, when you get a grip on death, biblically, death does not have a grip on you because Christ beat death. Christ defeated death. And as Jesus said when he showed up at Lazarus' house, and after he delayed two days on purpose, after he knew he was sick, and after Lazarus had been in the tomb now, at first he was sick, now he's dead. He's in the tomb for four days. When he shows up, Lazarus' sister said, Lord, if you had have been here, he would not have died. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus beat death. Death does not take you out of existence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, you see, you get a grip on death by understanding that Jesus beat death. Therefore, your last breath will be your best breath. Because when you absent the body, you're present immediately with the Lord. But that's counterintuitive, you see. My dad died at 85, and he was healthy as a horse till he was 80, and then he got some cancer uh, of the sinuses, of all things. And you've got to go through the chemo, and he did, and it about killed him. You know, they got to kill you to keep you alive, and it really weakened him. But just prior to his getting cancer, we were driving somewhere, and I, I, I said, Dad, let me ask you something. Because, um, you know, you're, you're getting some miles on the tires, Dad. I don't know if you realize that, but. And, and he laughed, and he goes, yeah, I'm getting up there. I said, you ever think about dying? He goes, no, no, not really. I mean, I knew he was going to say that. He said, not much. I said, well, when you think about it, what do you think? He said, I, I'm just, I, he said, I just am not worried about it. I know where I'm going. I just know, Steve. I mean, it was like him saying, so, Dad, what do you think? Who's going to win the game this weekend? It was the same, same level of, you know, no anxiety. His heart rate didn't go up. He didn't, you know, start cold sweats. He didn't, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about it. So why are you bringing this up now? Nothing like that. He just wrote, yeah, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. I know what Jesus has done. I'm good. I've trusted in him. I mean, he just, I knew he, I, I, that's where I knew where he was. You see? He believed this. I knew he believed it. Didn't freak him out. Didn't scare him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor of Westminster Chapel, I quote him all the time, 
He was a medical doctor before he was a pastor. Um, at a certain point in his life, 79, 80, I think, he, I think he died at 81, if I'm not mistaken, 82. Uh, he got cancer, went through all the stuff. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was in a very, very weakened state, couldn't even speak. It got real bad, they called the family together. Uh, he had enough strength that as the family came together, he, uh, he, he nodded, you know, he wanted a pen and paper. He was able to scratch out a note to his family as they all gathered around him. And the note said, do not pray for my healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. I love that. <laughs> Don't pray for my... He was a medical doctor. He knew all his systems were breaking down. He could self-diagnose. He was at the end. But you know what? He wanted to see Christ. He'd finished the race. He'd run the race. He'd run the course. He wasn't afraid. He was looking forward to it. Don't hold me back from this. I'm ready. That's counterintuitive. No fear, no anxiety. He wants to go. Which takes me to the next term. Uh, what I see also in verse 23 is that he is desiring departure. He's desiring departure. Let's read 23. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Having the desire to depart. Um, that word depart was used of soldiers when it was time for the soldiers at the crack of dawn, to take down their tents and move on. It was used of sailors when it was time to loosen a ship and set sail. In other words, it's time to depart. It's time to move on. It's time for the next chapter. And you see, when a believer takes his last breath, when we die, it's time to move on. It's time to set this ship moving to the next chapter. And there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to be afraid of, because Jesus beat death and Jesus owns death. That's the gospel. So when you trust in Christ, when do you receive eternal life? In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, there, there are some folks who think that, yes, I asked Christ to come into my life and he'll forgive me of my sins, but um, I don't receive eternal life until I die. That's incorrect. You receive eternal life the moment your heart is regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you trust in Christ alone for the salvation of your sins. If you know Jesus Christ, you possess eternal life. John 10, Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He doesn't lose any of them. You see, you possess it right now, which is an incredible concept. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Uh, he, he desired to depart. And, and see, this is, this is why he is hard-pressed. Now, let me go to the next term. This is my fourth term. It's the term far better. Far better. Uh, the New American Standard, which I'm reading out of, 
uh, uses the phrase very much better. But let's read 23. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Some translations say it's far better. What's far better? To depart this world and be with Christ. Why? Because there's no suffering, there's no sickness, there's no more pain, there's no more stress, there's no more difficulty, there's no more anxiety, there's no more, it's perfection. Years ago, I'm doing a conference, I remember it was in Missouri, about halfway through our conference, we'll take a break because we're giving a lot of information to guys. We'll do a, a Q&A for 20 minutes. And the guy sitting over here raised his hand. He really didn't have a question. He really, he just had something to say. And he was pretty broken up. He had tears and, and he basically said, you, you know, uh, several years ago, both of my sisters encountered, this guy was probably 60, both of my sisters encountered, got cancer in the same year and they'd been through the therapy and all that. And our family prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal them. And this year we buried both of my sisters. And uh, I can't believe that God would not answer my prayer. And I said to the guy, I said, I, I want to say this kindly. I know you, you've got a broken heart over this. You obviously were very close to your sisters. That's a, a wonderful thing. And I know you miss them. But I want to say this uh, I want to say this to you. I want to say it gently, and I want to say it kindly, but I want to say it. You, you're, it seems to me you're disappointed because you asked God to heal your sisters, and God did not answer your prayer. He said yes. I said, did your sisters have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Did they know him? He said, absolutely. I said, your sisters are healed. They've been healed. God did answer your prayer. He says, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. I said, I know what you mean. You wanted him to heal your sisters and give them more time on earth. But see, God didn't do that. But he healed your sisters. Your sisters have no pain. May I say this to you? Your sisters would not want to come back. <laughs> right? See, it's, it's tough to lose a loved one. It's just, it's just, you lose a child. A baby, an infant. I recently did a, a service for a little baby that was stillborn. Parents in grief. But I'll tell you what, those two young parents encouraged me because they had a stellar faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they knew who that little boy was. They were stellar. They knew, it's, they knew they'd see him again. And they knew he was far better. It's far better. Now, let's go to the next phrase. The next phrase, this is my number five, and I'm trying to carefully enumerate here. Not for you, but for me, so I don't get lost. I don't do well with ten things. I'm not a multitasker, so this is a challenge here. The fifth concept that I see in this passage is deny yourself. But what's interesting is you don't read those words in the passage. Now, where you read those words is Luke 9, 23. Jesus said, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross, follow me. Uh, 
the concept of denying yourself is in this passage. And you see, Paul was a leader. One of the callings of Christian leadership is to deny yourself. Now, let's, break the, let's, let's, let's go back over this turf. So Paul's in prison. He's, he, he's been through all kinds of persecutions. His body is beat up. He's, this guy's just a physical wreck. He can't sleep at night. All of this, da, 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 da. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. He doesn't know if they're going to kill him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 21, okay, let's work it through again. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That's one option, is to live on in this body that maybe they'll let me out and I'll have more opportunities to preach the gospel, maybe see you guys again. I don't know, but I'll have more years on the earth to minister and the gospel will progress, okay? If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Uh, I don't know which to choose. Not that he can choose, but he was saying, he's just talking about it in his heart, okay? Um, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire and depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's far better than sticking around here on this earth and dealing with this back pain and dealing with this and not sleeping at night, and that's far better to be with Christ. But you see, I'm hard-pressed. Why am I hard-pressed? Because it would be better for you if I were to stick around and God were to continue to lose, use me to propagate the gospel and for the gospel to keep growing through my ministry. You see, I'm hard-pressed. One of these things would be best for me. The other would be best for you. Then he says this, 24, yet to remain on in the flesh, watch this, is more necessary for your sake. See, he kind of knows deep down this isn't the end. And it wasn't the end. Now, he would minister, he would, eventually he'd get out, he would minister for several more years, then he would be back in prison in Rome, and they'd cut off his head. But he wasn't quite there yet, and he kind of knew that. He's just sharing his heart, man, I'm hard-pressed here. What's the best thing? Well, the best thing, what Paul really knew, he knew what he wanted to do, but he knew the best thing was to deny himself. This is Christian leadership. This is what Christian husbands do. Christian husbands deny themselves. If you're there to get your needs met, you're going to be disappointed. There's not, a, there's not a woman on the face of the earth who can meet all your needs. And by the way, you can't meet her needs. No other human being can meet all of your needs. Now, when you, when you have a partner and, you know, you, you've got some harmony and all of that, it's a, it's a great thing. But no one is flawless, no one is perfect. Uh, husbands are called to deny themselves. Ephesians 5 uh, says, uh, husbands, that's 1 Peter 3, 7. I've got to switch to Ephesians 5. Um, husbands, love your wives just as Hollywood actors love their wives. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus denied himself. Jesus did what was best for us instead of what was best for him. I am to love my wife just as Christ loved the church. You see? Good leaders deny themselves. 
But you see, our natural propensity is to love ourselves. Uh, we're drunk on ourselves. Self-love, self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, self-understanding, self... We justify all kinds of things in the name of self. Well, she's not meeting my needs. I'm out of here. Oh, I know I don't have biblical grounds. I've heard this many times. I, well, I, I, listen, this has been going on for so long, I don't have biblical grounds. Okay? What about your kids? I mean, I know you're done with her. You have kids? Yeah, what about your kids? Is this going to hurt your kids? I mean, you've got to think this through here. Now, if you've got biblical grounds, you don't always have to take them, but there are biblical grounds, you see. But you're telling me you don't have any biblical grounds. You see, at some point, you're going to have to deny yourself. This is Christian leadership. We're, we're surrounded by leaders, and we see them all the time. We, we, we have a Congress that makes laws and then exempts themselves. Right? That's the worst possible leadership you can have. Telling everybody else what to do, and then you do the exact opposite because you're above the law. That what that means you're lawless. And by the way, when the man when the Antichrist comes, he's called the man of lawlessness. But first John two says, many Antichrists have gone out into the world. They're everywhere. They're lawless and they don't deny themselves. They're little gods and they're God is self. So you see, he's hard pressed. Uh, th this, is, this is Christian maturity. God wants us to move from being self-lovers to other lovers. It doesn't mean, look at Philippians, Philippians 2. It's the same book. <laughs> what a concept. Look at verse 3, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Does that mean you never think about your own interest? Look at the next verse. You not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. You gotta look out for your own interest, of course you do. But you just don't only look out for your own interest. You look out for the interest of others, why? Because there are times you deny yourself in order to bless other people. You get this? That's why Paul was hard pressed. What's best for me? Just to get out of here, go be with the Lord. <clears throat> Done with this. Ah, but it'd be best for you. So be it. Now he's going to switch gears a little bit. Beginning with 26. Uh, actually, beginning with uh, verse 27. Now he's going to talk to them. He's been talking about himself. And he's pretty much convinced in verse 25 and 26 that he's going to remain and he's going to continue to minister. But look at 27. He's going to give them some instructions. Here's number six. He tells them to stay clean. Stay clean. I get that from verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stay clean. Psalm 19 says, the fear of the Lord is clean. Clean. It doesn't mean that we don't sin, we do sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, this is written to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to clean us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The great thing 
one of the great things about the amazing grace of God is that when you confess your known sin, he cleanses you from all sin. Because a lot of times we sin and we don't even know we sin. You see? But the sin that I'm aware of when I confess it to the Lord, if I'll confess that known sin, he cleanses me from all sin as I walk through life. Okay. What, what he's saying is, he's saying, only conduct yourselves in a manner, literally, as good citizens. Be clean. Be clean. Uh, when you're unclean, confess it to the Lord. If you have wronged somebody, if you have stolen from somebody, if you have not been uh, honest with somebody, and, there's a, there's, and you sense you need to go make it right, go make it right. Go talk to them. Clean it up. Clean it up. If there's stuff that, that you're aware of, and it's just, it, go deal with it. Go fix it. Go take the initiative and talk to the individual. Clean up your stuff. Live as good citizens. In Philippi, being a citizen was a big deal because they were a Roman outpost. They were a Roman colony. And they had, they were, they were, it was just like living in Rome. It was a little Rome. They were real proud of their citizenship. Look at a, uh, Philippians 3, 20. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. So we're aliens living on this earth, but let's live as citizens in this city of Christ. Watch your behavior. Watch your character. Watch your conduct. Next thing he says, number seven, stand firm. That's also in verse 27. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether that I come and see you or remain absent, either way, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm. Standing together. There are two things in life you can't do by yourself. You, uh, you can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. And you can't live the Christian life by yourself. Amen. Which leads me to the next one, number eight, which is in the same verse, which is striving together. Let's read the whole verse. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that's unity, and one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We don't live the Christian life by ourselves. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. We're striving together. For what? For the faith of the gospel. Uh, when I think striving, it's, it's a teamwork concept. And I was looking at this this week. You know what I thought of? Striving together? The thing that comes to my mind is tug of war. You ever done tug of war? At a picnic or something? You talk about striving together. My gosh. You got guys sweating, you guys got you got guys grunting, you got guys being pulled, you've got guys groveling in the dirt, you got guys with dirt in their teeth, and you're striving together. You see. Uh, why are they striving together? Uh, for the faith of the gospel. And listen, the gospel's under attack, and they're under persecution. See, persecution is normal in the New Testament. To us, it's foreign, but we're going to get familiar with it real quick. Which leads me to the next concept, which is what I call standing tall, which is also in verse 
well, it's actually it's in 28. Let's pick up 27. I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Watch this. In no way alarmed by your opponent. Literally, in no, in no, uh, in no way panicked by your opponents. Oh my gosh. They're against me. Oh my gosh, I might wind up in jail like Paul. Oh my gosh, I might have to pay a price. I might lose my job. Oh my gosh, I might have a lawsuit for standing for the gospel, for standing for my conviction. Yeah, you might. But you see, you still stand tall. In no way alarmed, in no way panicked. Why? Why? Well, you got to take a step back uh, because your life is in his hands. They can't touch you without permission from the Father. They can't do it. They can't do it. They cannot touch you without permission from the Father. If you have an adversity, if you have a suffering, it's because you've been appointed to it. And he will give you strength to get through it. This is what we forget. We, we hear of someone going through something terrible, and we say, oh, I could never go through that. Actually, you could. Because is it Deuteronomy 32? Uh, man, I can't pull it out. Might be 24, might be 32. Read the whole book. It'll be good for you. <laughs> as thy days, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. I could never get through that. Well, that, you know what? I don't have the strength to get through that. Yeah, but if you went through it, he'd give you the strength that would be equal to what you're going through. It's what he does. You've been through things, if you walk with Christ for a while, you've been through things you thought you could never get through, and he got you through it. Because, you see, his power is perfected in weakness. God's counterintuitive. I'm not strong enough. You don't have to be strong. You're weak. But when you're weak, his, he's strong. It displays, it displays his power. And they can't touch you apart from permission from the Father. Job could not be afflicted unless Satan first went to the Father, and the Father said, you can go this far, but you can't cross the line. You see? So ultimately, you take a step back and say, wait a minute, my life is in your hands. Yes, it is. It's not in their hands. It's in your hands. You see? Psalm 31, as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. The tenth thing that I see here that's critical is thinking straight. Thinking straight. Look at 29. See, they're under affliction. They're under persecution. They got to think straight about this. Paul says, don't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm kind of digressing. It's a sign of destruction for them because they see your strength. They see that you're fearless. They see that you've got courage. And you know what? It kind of rattles them. Kind of freaks them out a little bit. What, what, what is this? Where does this come from? It comes from God. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Watch this. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. For to you it has been gifted. And he's going to mention two gifts that God gives to us. These are twin gifts. For to you it has been gifted or granted for Christ's sake. Not only, here's the first one, not only to believe in him, believing in Christ is a gift from God. It's a gift. 
but it comes with the twin, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Sometimes I wish the Bible were written in pencil. I wish I had the NPV version, the new pencil version, because I could erase that second part. I want the first gift. It's been granted to you to believe in Christ. I'm all for that. Thank God for that. Thank God for eternal life. But to, here's the twin. You got twins. You ever hear that? You got twins. Oh, my gosh. You got twins. Every guy in here knows Christ has twins. You have the gift of salvation, and you got the identical twin. Actually, they're fraternal twins, the gift of suffering. You see, I don't get that at all. I don't get that at all. Well, it's everywhere in the Scriptures. It's not everywhere in Christian television, but it's, it's in the Word of God. You see? For you, it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. I've been granted the gift of salvation. I've been granted the gift of suffering. Now, you say, I don't get this. How does this work? Let's break it down real quick because I'm out of time. The twin gifts of God are salvation and suffering. Salvation is the gift that gives you new birth. Suffering is the gift that puts you on the path to maturity. Because you see, new birth means you're new, you're born, you're an infant, you're immature. But he doesn't want us to stay immature, he wants us to move on to maturity, and the path to maturity is suffering. James 1, count it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various prosperities. Knowing, not what it says. Does God prosper us? Sure he does. He's been so good to us, and he'll continue to be good. Count it joy, think it is joy, when you encounter, not if, not if, when, this is certain, count it joy, when you encounter various trials, watch this, knowing, this is where you got to think straight, why am I in this hardship? Why is this happening to me? Count it joy, think it is joy, don't feel it is joy, think it is joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what I find interesting about this? <laughs> Paul starts off by asking them in verse 19 and 20, he prays that he will finish strong. The Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. I've talked in here before about the guy I met who ran ultramarathons. I'd never heard of an ultramarathon. This guy told me it was his hobby. I said, what's an ultramarathon? He said, they're 100-mile races. We run 100 miles without stopping. I'd never heard of such a thing. This guy looked normal. <laughs> and there were two other guys in this church, and the three of them, it was their, it was their hobby. It was what they did. Every 90 days, they'd run an ultramarathon. Every 90 days. You know how he trained for that marathon? How do you run 100 miles? How do you run 100 miles without stopping? Well, he'd get up every morning before breakfast, and he ran 20 miles before breakfast. So if you run 20 miles six days out of seven, and you do that for three months, to run 100 miles without stopping is not that big of a deal because you run 20 every morning before breakfast. In other words, he chose suffering in order to gain endurance so that he could finish strong. The path to finishing strong is suffering. 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Have you got tribulation in your life? Have you got some suffering? Paul says rejoice. Because these are for a season. They're temporary. And one day, you're going to take your last breath. And it's the best day of your life. But in the interim, he's maturing us. And he's with us. And he's going to use us. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is counterintuitive to the American dream. But it's the dream you have for us that we might be mature men in Christ. Help us to learn these lessons. Help them to apply them to our circumstances. We trust you with our lives. And we thank you as we go home and go to sleep tonight. We'll get up. And in the morning, your mercies will be new and fresh. And your steadfast love will be there as it always is. We live off of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and uh, for you guys that want to stay for a little bit, we'll do the Q&A. We've got Rob here with the mic, and we've got uh, Lawrence over here. And uh, we'll let you guys clear out for a minute. John, see you later. Thanks, man. Sir. 33? Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. How you doing, Bruce? Those of you, those of you that are staying for the Q&A, why don't you move up front a little bit? All right, guys. As we said last week, if you have a question, try to make it brief to the point, and we'll do this for a few minutes, and uh, if you'll raise your hand, one of these guys will run up to you with a mic, and we'll see what we get, get a little interaction. Is that all right? You're welcome. Thanks. Well, we got right here, Michael. Um, so, uh, Philippians 1.27, it talks about... Um, Are you in Philippians? Yeah, Philippians one twenty seven. Yeah, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I've been having a lot of uh, discussions about this whole uh, emergent movement. Yeah, and how uh, you know, yeah, the, God's word is changing with yeah, with you know, and so you know, a lot of the gray areas have become really big, and, and yeah, the, the gospel, you know, and, and these are guys that. You know, I know, love the Lord. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's crazy. Some of them do. Yeah. And, and yeah, so he's, I'm just wondering about the, the yeah. That. He's asking about a, a movement that's actually kind of dying out that, that is called the emerging, the, the emerging church. Uh, and uh, the emerging church, they had some guys, they were really big several years ago. And uh, like one of them wrote a book called A Generous Orthodoxy. Now you stop and think about that. Orthodoxy <laughs> means the faith, but he wants a generous orthodoxy. In other words, he's not comfortable with orthodox, biblical, fundamental Christianity. He wants a more generous one. He wants to open the gates. Uh, uh, he wrote another book called The New Kind of Christian, Brian McLaren. Uh, and for a while, he was an editor and writing in Christianity Today magazine. 
And then he, uh, he officiated at the wedding of his son to another man. And it was in the New York Times, and there's, I mean, he was no problem. Well, there is a problem. You see, another guy in the emerging church movement says that, uh, uh, is it, hey, Ben, are we recording this? Because I want to be careful. Are you recording this? Did you say no? No recording. If I'm not mistaken, there's a guy, a, a Brit named Tony Jones, and he's one of the leaders of the emerging church. Uh, he, uh, the fact that, that God would put his own son on the cross, he calls that, uh, I'm not going to get his words right, but basically he says it's absolutely despicable, his child abuse. Uh, the, the, yeah, the emerging, and the, by the way, emerging churches are dying. They're absolutely dying. The problem, with, the problem with these churches, they keep on expanding the borders. I, on Tim Challey's website this morning, I, I read, he reviewed a book by a woman. It's on the New York Times. She's a Lutheran pastor, and she throws the F-bomb and all this constantly. Uh, you know, and a lot of people come to hear her, and she's obviously quite an excellent writer, but she doesn't believe the gospel. Um, The, well, yeah, the guy, yeah, they want to make the gospel more pleasant and acceptable to society. Here's the other thing. They really don't believe in the authority of the Bible. They have an authority issue. They're not under, they don't believe this is the word of Christ. They're playing with the text. Uh, they're not under God's authority, and they're, they're always trying to add to. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 1, even if we or an angel from heaven should appear to you and preach a different gospel, uh, let, uh, let him be accursed. Uh, even though we or an angel from heaven preached to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. This is the word of God. This is the gospel. Um, uh, I, I pulled out an article today from Eric Taunus, who teaches at Biola University. Uh, and in the introduction, it, it refers to what you're asking. Because we have, we have social gospel churches. You just preach the social gospel. You just give a cup of water in Jesus' name. But you, you, you know, there's... So, it's just social justice without the gospel. Um, as an introduction uh, to what Taunus said, um, the headline is, not all doctrines are at the same level. How to make some distinctions and determine a doctrine's importance. And Eric Taunus has said, um, number one, there are absolutes, and absolutes define the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And you have to believe certain things. I am a sinner. Jesus died in my place. Uh, Jesus is God. Uh, there are certain core beliefs that you must believe. There are certain things that you can't believe. Uh, you can't believe that there are other ways to God. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So he has four categories. Tana says there are absolutes they define the core beliefs of the Christian faith. There are convictions which are not core beliefs, but may have significant impact on the health and effectiveness of the church. That would be Romans 14. One man can eat meat offered to idols, another guy can't. He can't do it in his heart. The scriptures don't speak to it, but you've got to have your own conviction. Uh, today, some guys can drink wine, other Christians can't drink wine. But Romans 14 would say, don't judge each other. It's a conviction, okay? Now the scripture's clear, you don't get drunk. 
The third one would be opinions. Opinions are less clear issues that generally are not worth dividing over. Uh, you know, I'm for this guy for president, and I'm for this guy. That's an opinion. Fine. You know, you can be wrong if you want to. <laughs> Four, questions are currently unsettled issues, you see. But there are things, it's the faith once delivered. Contend earnestly, Jude said. Contend, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered. Emerging church guys debate endlessly the faith. I'm not under the authority. Good question. Yeah. Somebody else, right here. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, you mentioned something last week, and you, you kind of hit on a, with a couple of statements this, this evening. On, on the world stage, we see a lot of things changing. On the world stage, a lot of things changing. Yes, yeah. sir, as far as uh, attitudes towards Christians. Yes. What, is, in your viewpoint, your opinion, do you see here in the United States that as Christians uh, that we need to be on the lookout for in the future as far as uh, persecution goes? Uh, well, I think it's coming. I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's coming. Uh, and the scripture says that, that all who believe in Christ will be persecuted. There are different levels of persecution, and it's always been around. But what's happening now is that restraints are being taken off. And, you know, we've, we've had this constitution that folks have respected and lived under. And, I mean, the whole founding of this country... I mean, quite frankly, the whole founding, there are some people who were persecuted in England called pilgrims, and they, went, made, they, they made their way here. And the, the very first thing that said, it's about the freedom to worship God. It's freedom of religion. It's freedom of speech. That's under attack because, once again, we're living in an age of lawlessness, and they don't care about law. They don't care about principles. So, and they have no principles, and they have no law, and they have no morality. If you read Romans 1.18 down to the end, uh, this is where we are, and there, there's, there's this wave. So I would think it's going to get more difficult, and it's going to get worse. Uh, but you know what? Uh, you know where the gospel is growing the most? It's where, it's where the church is persecuted. That's where the, the gospel is growing like wildfire. And, you know, we have Christians, we're praying for revival, Lord, send a revival. That's great. We, we may get it. You see? Uh, the church father, Tertullian, as Christians were being uh, killed for their faith, why were they killing Christians? They wanted to stamp out Christianity. He said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. You're just spreading seed, man. And wherever there's persecution, the church is growing. So I, do I think there's going to be more persecution? Yeah. How fast? How soon? I don't know. I, I, my life is in his hands. I can't die till my work is done. You see? I pray for my kids that God will give them, uh, that they'll be Daniels. I pray for my grandkids that God will sustain them. Uh, I, I pray that they will learn through their trials and their hardship um, because I think they need it to get ready for what's coming. But I don't, I don't live in fear. I really don't live in fear. Am I concerned? Yeah. But once again, God's in charge of this whole deal. That's my perspective on it. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Before you leave that. Yeah. We. Yeah, the Jeremiah 29, 
he, Ron said, can you touch on Jeremiah 29 in relation to that? When, when the very worst happened, and, and I'll give you a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. Lloyd-Jones Lloyd -Jones ministered, his congregation was in London. And so his congregation would get together on Sunday mornings, and there were people who were there the previous Sunday who weren't there this Sunday because they'd been killed in the, in the bombing raids. These people were getting bombed every night. That's, that's, what you call, that's what you call stress. That's what you call adversity. They didn't know that night if they would be killed or their babies would be killed. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, in one of his messages, was talking about, uh, you know, worry and anxiety. And he said, you know, oftentimes the psychologists will tell you, well, don't worry about that. Um, most of what we worry about never happens. And he said, that never helps me because I figure, what if it does happen? And he said, you know what I would encourage you to do? He, he said, I would encourage you to look at the worst that could happen. Don't, don't ignore it. He said, really look at it. What is it that really, really frightens you as your greatest fear? Even write it down. What is the worst that could possibly happen to you? If it were to happen, know this. If that worst were to happen to you, know this. He's still your Savior. He's still your God. He's still your Deliverer. He'll still make a way. He will still see you through. That's the gospel. Now, in, the worst happened when the nation of Judah was taken into captivity for 70 years. That was Daniel and his buddies who went into captivity for 70 years. They lost their land. They lost their freedom. They lost their property rights. They lost everything. Oh, I might lose my nation. We might. I don't know. But they lost everything. To those people in Jeremiah 29, God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Because God makes promises to his people, to the remnant that he makes to no one else. And that's why they could say, when Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to worship this image. If you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fire. And they said, oh, king, we don't need to give you an answer to this. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not bow. But earlier in Jeremiah 29, God tells them, and they're going to be in there 70 years. And it wasn't friendly to their faith. He says, he says to them, what I want you to do is I want you to take wives. I want, to marry, I want you to have kids, marry off your kids. I want you to plant orchards, plant vegetables. I want you to start businesses would be the equivalent. And I want you to work for the welfare of the city. In other words, I want you to occupy and be citizens of heaven in this foreign environment. And I'll sustain you. So we don't have to freak out. We don't have to run for the hills. He's a faithful God. Most Christians in the scripture lived under persecution. He took care of them. He'll take care of us. You see, I might die. You will die. Count on it. Guys, it's 8 o'clock. Is that it? Yep. I was just getting warmed up. I know you were. <laughs> You're on a roll. My heart rate just got up, man. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks.